to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 137, recorded on February, what is it, February 4th of 2021. Uh, and uh, this is the Photo Geekery Show, where uh, I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, and uh, I often have, uh, well, I always have a guest host uh, ever since the first three episodes where uh, we just talk about photo geekery stuff, uh, the industry news, new technology, new product announcements. Sure, that's a part of it. But there's ethical dilemmas. Uh, there's legalities. There's patents of stuff that might never become anything. But we are so excited just to see people researching into these areas. Um, and with me to be excited about all of this stuff is my good friend, Steve Brazel today. Steve, how are you doing, my friend? I'm doing quite well, my friend. It's good to see you. I feel like I just saw you. Well, yeah, this is the third thing that we've done in two days. So yeah. yes, I can, <laughs> I, I, I get that feeling as well. But at the same time, you know, we haven't really asked, I, well, at least I didn't ask you. We've always been on a bit of a, a tight schedule here. Um, what have you been up to in the last little while? Uh, we are doing the normal stuff that everybody's doing during pandemic. We're staying home a lot. Uh, my wife has gotten really into cooking over the last year. And so she's making great meals and I'm just working out of the house. I mean, my normal job I get to do remotely. That makes it nice and easy. And then a lot of the podcast stuff. So I've got, you know, this is, I've got four sessions this week, including this, the thing we did last night, the critique show. I've got a, a normal episode I'm recording tomorrow with headshot legend, Peter uh, Hurley. And that's pretty much it. Just doing the behind the shot stuff and doing everything that I can possibly do. And, uh, and you do it well, uh, at least the stuff well, that I see. You. I mean, you have uh, an IT background and I'm sure that keeps you busy as well. Uh, thankfully, I, I hope you can do a lot of that stuff remotely these days. And, um, yeah. and I, I haven't really left the house much. Uh, I, we walk around the block maybe once every couple of days, uh, maybe more so now that it's a bit of a warmer spell. It's not minus 20 degrees Celsius outside today. So uh, maybe after this call, we'll go out for a, a, a nighttime stroll with the family when nobody else is around. But we're we're kind of homebodies. My wife goes to work. She's a registered nurse and she works in long-term care facilities. So she, uh, uh, you know, we're just really cautious about this whole pandemic thing. And, right. uh, you know, I, I make it sound like, oh, uh, this is new. <laughs> now we're, we're almost going into the full year mark of being into complete lockdown. And uh, my creativity has suffered over that year. My productivity has suffered. Um, but there have been some really nice moments along the way, some aha, eureka moments uh, that have come up. And uh, some of them have just been completely unexpected marvels and just relish them when you can find them because yes. I don't necessarily get them every day. But when you've got them, uh, you know, it's uh, worthy of, you know, cracking open a bottle of wine and celebrating. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, and for me, as much as the pandemic lifestyle, as it were, uh, you know, yes, there's downsides to it. But I married my best friend. So hanging out at home is wonderful and and uh, watching friends succeed during times like these is wonderful. And once the world stops ending, I'm sure we'll all get back to normal very, very quickly. Oh, let's hope so. I would love to buy you a beer at some point, Steve. And actually, it'll be we, nice. Steve and I, by the way, I mean, it sounds like we're old buddies. Uh, if you listen to this podcast, we've never actually met each other. Um, so I don't know you now. No, no, especially I become a different person when I let my hair grow out. My wife cut it once during the pandemic and it sorely needs another cut. Um, oh my God, it, we have a lot in common. Yeah. <laughs> I, when I get, when my, let my hair grow out. Yeah. 
Although, you know, it's funny though, if I were to like comb it backwards, this would turn into an afro. Uh, and maybe on a future live show, I will have a brush handy to actually yeah. do that and wear a shirt that says, uh, says like I shoot JPEG or something and really annoy Jared Poland. But I'm not going to do that today. Uh, my, my hair isn't quite big enough yet for that endeavor. But let's, uh, let's get into, uh, into the stories for the week. Uh, one of the, the, the main story, I'll call it, uh, actually dropped last week, but we had such a full, uh, a full list of things to talk about. We said, well, let's head that off for another episode. And that's Fujifilm's announcement of the GFX 100S. And, and oftentimes when you think about um, a, a smaller version of a pro level camera, it's like, okay, well, it's just the, the little brother or little sister, uh, of, of that bigger sibling and you lose things in the process. You, uh, you know, they cut corners, they give you something substandard, but I don't really think they did much of that here. They had to do some obviously to get the price point to where it is at just a hair under $6,000 us. But you've got a medium format, Fuji's medium format uh, of of DSLR or uh, mirrorless camera, uh, rather, that is uh, the size of a regular full frame camera body. It just has a big old sensor in there, and it's the same sensor, the same 102 megapixel sensor that is in the GFX 100. So, what do you think about this? Uh, I don't really want to call it a transition, but addition to their product offerings and what it means for the market that they're aiming for. I, I actually think that there's a number of things in this particular body that people are going to love, which is evidenced by the fact that they have now said that they could be delayed or have a shortage of stock because interest in this camera is big. Like you say, this is a small version of the GFX 100, but it's the same sensor. You're talking medium format, in-body IS, and the IS in this actually is better than its bigger brother. Yeah, slightly better. Bigger sister. So it's 0.5 to positive one, plus one EV, better performance. So a total of about six stops of in-body IS, and it can be paired with IS lenses to do even better. There was one interesting thing in here, by the way. There was actually three things that stuck out at me, but but this one was interesting. Is it normal for a medium format body like this to have a magnification of 0.77 in the viewfinder? I think That so. seemed like a handicap to me for a $6,000 body. I mean, that just means that it's not as big as the actual sensor. Uh, it, it means that it's the same size electronic viewfinder that you would probably find on a full frame camera or something in that neighborhood. Um, a, a handicap, I, I don't know if I would call it that. If you were to, to go into the medium format film era and you had a, a, a pentaprism that, uh, uh, that would, you know, act, or I, I don't want to say necessarily film, but they had medium format uh, DSLRs too. Uh, but when you had an optical viewfinder, an optical view path, it would be bigger. Now this is smaller, uh, and that's okay. I mean, it's not well, I, how what, what I was thinking of actually was percentage of view, which is normally what you talk about in viewfinders. And that actually, that number wasn't in there as far right, as, you know, the viewfinder is 98% of, of the view. But and the other thing in, that was interesting, all electronic viewfinders, it's going to be pretty well 100%. It's just how, how much magnified it is versus the actual sensor size. Right, right. The, the other thing that was interesting to me was the video side actually was interesting too. It's the same battery as the X-T4. 
you get about 460 shots, which is seems low. But again, these are these are spec numbers, not real world numbers. But then there's a new film simulation. It's their 19th film simulation called Nostalgic Negative, and it's a 1970s art look. And I think that's one of the areas where Fuji is doing some really cool stuff. I might question that, Steve, because I, I can run my camera, uh, my, my files uh, through any filter you can imagine, right? Right. Like there, there are entire software suites with hundreds, if not over a thousand right. different filter options. And that's all it's really doing. The fact that Fuji is doing that in camera, it's but nice. That's an advantage but- at times, Don. If, if I need to, if I'm shooting for something and I need to turn it around real quickly, or I want to dump it onto an iPad and quickly, quickly upload it, there are advantages if that's what you want. And there's 19 different choices on these filters. I, I, but I don't do that. And I've, I've never done that. And I don't know Neither anybody I, that has really embraced that. I'm not saying that there aren't people out there that do. And it's great if that's a feature for you. But that's like having an Ethernet port on the, uh, the Sony A1. And that's great for those that need it. I will never utilize that feature right. one bit. I, well, there, but again... That's one I would say I can name people who will need it. This one, maybe not, but I still think it's kind of a cool innovation. What did you think of the video specs on this? Uh, so H.265 or 264 uh, at uh, 400 megabits per second at uh, 10 bit 422 output. That that sounds pretty standard in terms of the video output from a camera like this. Um, and uh, if you put the digital stabilization on, which is nice because, uh, you know, it, it imposes a 1.1 times crop, but it gives you that wiggle room to stabilize the footage. Uh, and, and I think that's perfectly fine. I, that's standard. It there's It's 4K up to 30 frames per second. There's nothing special about that. Uh, it is a medium format size, and so you might have a different feel to the video uh, as a result. But I don't think that's anything different than what the uh, the bigger, uh, bigger sibling of this camera was capable of. Um, uh, twin UHS-2 card slots up to five frames per second. So it's right. not a speed demon by any means. But if anybody needs a 102 megapixel medium format camera, you're not doing motorsports with it or you shouldn't be. Yeah, no, I agree. 4K30 at H.264 or 265 is nice. Um, it is 12-bit raw to an external recorder, 10-bit internal, which was, yeah, was yeah, I, I missed that. The the 12-bit external uh, raw recorder, and I've got a, a Ninja uh, a Ninja V from Atomos. Atomos, right yeah. That, uh, that is what a lot of people are kind of uh, gearing their external recording towards. I have no idea if this one is going to be included. It's a safe bet that it's probably going to be there, but uh, if you need the highest quality video. Um, you probably have a budget for a more expensive camera. I, I mean, like a, a like an actual cinema camera or something that yeah, is like geared, a C two hundred like, or something like that. Uh, yeah. Like, I, but but even I've got the uh, the S one H, which does five point nine K ProRes RAW, and uh, and that's or a that's black mag- a black magic four K or six K is cheaper than this, of course. So if you if that's your goal. Uh, any of those cameras, including the one that I was just mentioning, are less expensive than this one. So regardless of how good the video features actually are, uh, there are better choices if that's why you're buying it. If you do the digital stabilization, it drops down to a 1.1 crop. Not a huge deal. But the interesting thing to me, again, was the demand. They have said it's all because of demand. Now, we don't know if it's really all demand or supply chain, but they've said that because of demand, initial shipment supplies, which were scheduled for March, I think March 11th or something like that, uh, have been delayed. 
it also could be because they're releasing more than just this. Well, and it's using the same sensor. And so there's a, a recurrence of parts that are being used in multiple camera bodies. And so there might be a supply chain pinch there. But uh, from Petapixel, they were saying that Fujifilm announced a lack of supply uh, and shipping delays for the GFX 100S. Now, I, I don't know, like you said, we don't know why. Um, it could be just the, the pandemic has prevented a certain part supplier that makes memory chips uh, unable to deliver enough of them uh, on time. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how quickly these can get into photographers' hands. But it's also a $6,000 camera body. I mean, that's not right. a small amount, right? The, the Sony A1 was clocking in at $6,500 US. So it's just a, a, you know, it's within the same ballpark of that one way or the other. Um, are there photographers, Steve, that uh, would require the doubling of resolution, you know, 102 megapixels versus 50 on the Sony A1, um, that would be willing to live with the reduction in uh, video quality? You know, this camera is only 4K. The Sony A1 is is 8K. Right. Um, 30 frames per second at 50 megapixels versus 5 at 102 you know, the delta in features here do not equal the delta in price. No, I completely agree with you. And But again, you, you mentioned it when you said serious videographers are going to buy a video camera, right? I think, I think one of the problems that people like you and I that, you know, give our opinions on these things sometimes forget is, you know, everybody nowadays is, uh, or I shouldn't say everybody, there's a lot of people out there that are hybrid shooters. And for them, some of what we would consider lacking specs are absolutely fine. I mean, there's a bunch of people out there with a Canon R5 that never run into the heat issues, right? Yep. A real serious videographer is going to look at specs differently than something like this that's kind of all over the board. Well, and so what did you think about the uh, the Fujifilm X-E4 that was also announced alongside of the GFX 100X uh, S? Okay, so this one, the X-E4, 24 megapixels, it's more range style, you know, rangefinder style. And I, I Same love sensor as the camera, but by the way, I mean, I, I have one here that I absolutely love. This is the, um, uh, the Lumix GX9, and I really wish that there's a successor to that at some point. I have no idea when that's going to come, but even as it is, I just love the format. Now, it's micro four thirds. Of course, the XE4 is going to be a little bit bigger, um, but that doesn't negate the, the love for the format of how these cameras are designed. Well, but here's the thing. There's a couple things they said in this. First of all, the same sensor as an S10. There's no IS. Again, for most people shooting this, that's not going to be a huge deal. They specifically said they designed it to be as flat as possible. Now, I'm assuming they mean without a lens. Uh, and again, it's kind of like the X-T4. But I think there's a lot of possibility of sales here. Uh, it does 40K 30 it does a uh, 30 frame per second electronic shutter with a one and a quarter crop, yep. 20 frames per second electronic if you're going to use the full sensor. And if you but, go mechanical, Steve, it's only eight frames a second. Yeah. So I, the, the, I don't know. The, the challenge with me there is electronic versus mechanical shutter. As far as I know, in the cameras that I've used, I cannot use a flash with an electronic shutter, right? I have to use a mechanical shutter to have the flash at play. And yeah, but I think some have gotten around that lately. I think the new Sony did, didn't it? I don't. I'll have to look into those details, and, and maybe yeah. somebody can, can can chime in specifically. Somebody can throw on it that. in the chat. I'm sure. 
but but that that was a detriment. I, I I firmly believe that we will go away with mechanical shutters at some point in the future, right? When we uh, when we just evolve the sensor technology to have a, a global shutter system built into the sensor, that's going to be a great place to be for us as photographers because it just gives us a lot more freedom, fewer moving parts to break, uh, less complexity in design, so possibly less expensive cameras, or the R and D goes towards other bits and pieces of the camera that just makes things better. Well, and, and again, look at the handicap here. So electronic shutter, 30 frames a second, if you do a one and a quarter crop, 20 frames per second if you do full sensor. But if you go mechanical, you drop to eight. Yeah. Right? I it's mean, again for, again, for most people, for most people, eight frames a second is more than the one shot they're going to take at a time. And Andrew chimed in just in, to the, be clear. in the chat and said that uh, the uh, Sony A1, I'm assuming it's the Sony A1, can flash sync electronic shutter at one two hundredth of a second. So yes. that that breaks that barrier because a lot of cameras that I, I've been I using thought in I the had past, seen something about that. Yeah, they they couldn't quite get there. And now now we are we're on the cusp of that, at least for some flagship halo products that as time goes on, that's going to trickle down to lower products. It's going to go across the industry. So uh, we, once the technology exists, then it's going to be easier for us to find it in a variety of products, you know, a year or two or five out. And again, you got it. You always got to go back to price, right? For what this is, the rangefinder style, the small body, no IS, 850 for the body is fine. That's and 1050 if you do it with a 27 millimeter 2.8. This is a, I have the feeling there's going to be street photographers that love this. Yeah, well, but the thing is, if they had the previous version of this camera, or they already have something very similar, are you going to get uh, value in selling your existing camera enough to upgrade to this new one that makes it worth the upgrade? I'm not saying whether or not this is a great camera. I'm saying whether or not the one that you have right now is good enough. Yeah, good point. And did you see what Terrell wrote in the chat, which is no one shooting indoors sports specifically uh, will be using a 30 frame per second electronic shutter. I totally agree, right? I mean, the anytime you're talking about this stuff, we always have to recognize that photography, we tend to talk about photography market as though it's just a market. And it's really not. The subgenres that exist in photography are not just genres of subject matter. They're completely different genres of the people that are shooting them and the needs. They're almost industries of their own. Somebody shooting live music or live sports on a professional level simply is a completely different ballpark than a wedding shooter. Absolutely. Uh, but you also have a lot of people that have delusions of grandeur and buy a camera beyond their capabilities, uh, you know, beyond their skills. Well. So yeah. you have you will have people, Terrell, that uh, will use a uh, a camera with a 30 frames per second electronic shutter shooting indoor sports. I'm not saying that's the right thing to do, but I'm saying that some soccer moms are going to do exactly that thing. And, uh, you know, uh, good luck to them. <laughs> well, and as an example, when when some of the Sony mirrorless first started getting popular, the autofocus was severely lacking compared to a, a Nikon or a Canon. And yet at a concert, I would definitely see people that would bring their Sony mirrorless in and start photographing music. And then the review started coming out. Yeah, it doesn't work really good for music. Now, most of that has been solved at this point. 
but like you say, some people just want the toys. Um, my argument there is that they're, they may be shooting pro gigs. It may be a free gig. They may be a hobbyist. Real pros are going to look at their cameras as a tool. They're going to pick the tool that will get the job done and get the paycheck. So that's right. Uh, and uh, yeah. th there's no question about that. And, and professionals will find the value in the gear as their clients are requesting uh, further enhancements of Im image quality. And, you know, you don't want to lose a job because you don't have the gear that the client expects you to have. Um, right. And a client might be misinformed uh, about what they need, but you can't correct for that. Uh, when you're trying to uh, get them to sign a contract. You just have to say, okay, well, you need this. I can deliver that. You can't talk a client down and say, no, you actually don't need that. Here's what I can deliver. Uh, and no, you say, I'm, I'm going to give you the best that you can get. Uh, and uh, there's no question about that. Uh, the gear, the exact camera and, uh, and lenses and stuff, very few clients actually care about. But there's, there, are there is one exception to that. What's there that? is an exception to that. I know wedding photographers that were still carrying, even though they owned a, you know, Nikon Z7 or a Z6 or whatever, that would still carry their D5 to a wedding because they wanted the bride and groom and the client to see them with the big, what, what people think of as pro gear. Uh, I know a couple who went to gigs, in this case, again, weddings, where, you know, the Uncle John that's at the wedding that always has a camera on him would go, wow, I'm surprised you're not using a pro camera. Now, you don't have to explain to them as long as your work stands up for itself, fine. But in some instances, and I would argue it's probably more than most people think, appearance does matter, right? I mean, oh, there's no question. And clients I know some clients see you a certain way. I know some wedding photographers that have bought battery grips for their camera. Not because they need a battery grip, but because it makes their camera look bigger. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, hey, if, if that's the game and it's a game of perception, perception is reality to a lot of people. That's a, that's a lesson I learned in advertising, uh, which is my formal education of all things. And so if you can be perceived as being a professional, then you are. Uh, kind of, not Not exactly, of course, there's so many cases where people have all of the gear, they can talk the talk, but they can't walk the walk. And that makes uh, the rounds right. of a, a fail article on Petapixel or DP review or whatever else. Um, but, you know, the best photographer, and we've talked about this before, can, can make an exceptional image from a smartphone. Uh, well, but the analogy I always say is Eddie Van Halen could have taken a $35 guitar from a pawn shop and made it sing, right? Oh, yeah. But totally. again, going back to the tool thing and it's Terrell again, he's a cannon shooter and it's not because of that. But one of the problems that I have with some of these bodies that come out and the, the two that we're talking about today, specifically the Fujis, um, is size. And in that case, like, for example, me with the Sony mirrorless, I can't get my finger when you have the Sony lenses that come and flange out. I can't get my finger inside the grip without it being uncomfortable. So I am curious Based on these type of cameras we're talking about, or based on the rumored Canon Pro, you know, R series camera that's going to come out at some point, I'm sure. I am I'm curious sure something's more coming. than anything They're about the have ergonomics. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But the ergonomics to me are where the differentiation is going to be in a lot of these, not whether or not it looks like a big pro camera. 
you got to be able to use it to the best of your skill, not to the yeah. best of the camera's ability. And yes, the camera's part of the equation. I get that, but don't negate the fact that you have to use it. Um, so I, and I, then I love take that your point. pictures and enter them in a contest. Well, thank you for that segue, Steve. So why don't you take the next story over? <laughs> no, 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 no. You do it. You do it better than me. Well, this was also reported from DP Review, but I've seen this everywhere. And they even mentioned that in the article that uh, different people were skeptical initially. Um, is it fraud? Question mark. Monochrome Photography Awards judges speak out. And so uh, I'll read a little bit from the article here uh, by Kara Murphy. Uh, last week, I published a slideshow highlighting winners and runner-ups of the Monochrome Photography Awards. I was under the impression it was a le- uh, it was legitimate since my friend, the world-renowned photographer Petra Leary, uh, was a judge for the competition. While some DP Review readers praised the black and white images in the comments section, others linked to an article from Petapixel, uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, that lists the monochrome awards as one of five photo contests surrounded by a shroud of mystery. Now, we might have talked about these before, Steve. I, uh, I, I, the, the name in this article sounds familiar. So, um, Yeah, I thought it and- did too. Yeah, the the in-depth and well-researched piece on Petapixel uh, reveals the Monochrome Photography Awards isn't exactly reputable. Uh, Under the management of one owner, Martin Stavars, um, who has all but disappeared from the internet, Monochrome joins the International Photographer of the Year, uh, the Fine Art Photography Awards, ND Awards, and Monovisions Photography Awards in a group that charges between $20 and $30 per image submission to thousands of entrants while doing very little prize money return. Now, that, you know, that actually sounds like a pretty darn good business model if you have no ethics. Uh, That's quite lucrative. You got to mention the numbers there. So they estimated what the Monochrome Photography Awards at 8,000 entries would have netted. And at 8,000 entries, you're talking that they would have taken in $160,000 profit. The awards totaled 3,000. This right here, this story is everything that's wrong with photography. First of all, you've got a DP review author who wrote an article based on what's already out there that has to actually come out and for lack of a better phrase, give an apology for sharing something that you would think was above board when really this author, not their fault at all. Um, The other thing you said, though, this person, what's the name again? Martin Stavers. Stavers Disappearing. I mean, pretty much. Stavars. Pronounce it wrong, people. Find the worst way to pronounce it and and stick with that. Let's have some fun. (laughs) And this isn't the only one, and he appears involved in some of the other ones. So International Photographer of the Year, IPOTY. Fine Art Photography Awards, ND Awards, Monovisions Photography Awards. And you're talking judges that have reported that the winners were announced and they hadn't judged one image. Which means that the owner is just picking the fancy images that they like, saying that they get the awards. The judges that might have been uh, contacted to judge, and this is all hearsay on my part. I'm I'm alleging this uh, with no context or talking to the judges um, at all. I'm just basing my opinions on what the article is saying. Um, And so it's my opinions. But if you you have an article 
that says judges didn't get to judge and yet the results were still presented. I think that there's, you know, there's multiple red flags that go out at that particular point. But even the judges that did get to judge, let's say that that did happen. Right. And it did. And it's listed in there. The process was frustrating, convoluted. Uh, it would crash. You'd have to restart everything. It was just a total mess for anybody that would actually try to go in and do their due diligence as a judge for one of these competitions. One of the quotes that's in this article. Basically, without completely ripping them apart, because I do appreciate that they wanted me to be a part of the team, the judging experiences experience for Mono Awards was terribly planned out. User experience was awful. First of all, it's that bad, and yet the judge still, because you don't know what connections go where, feels like they have to tap dance around not ripping them, right? Even you had to do the disclaimer. Look, you know, I'm not a, all of this. And it's the same as the person who wrote the original article and wrote this one that I shared this I over and over in this article stating, I didn't know, I didn't know. And first of all, to the author of this article, you didn't do anything wrong. Um, that's part of what journalism is. You take what you do, you fact check it the best you can. Nobody else realized this before, but there are signs. Yep. So the IPOTY site hasn't been updated since 2017. Yeah, right. that, there, that's there a are, sure sign that uh, there are little Martin signs guy that is, he's he's made off afterthoughts. In his, yeah, he's he's off in his private yacht somewhere and still trying to to, to milk a bit of money. Yep. Um, from this thing, and you know, I and I got that from one of the comments. It, uh, I I can't pull it up right now because it's got far more comments on it than than I thought. But you know, he's off in his private yacht. He'll get back to you soon or something like that. I had read when I was going through this article to begin with, and you know. That takes advantage of us as photographers. I'm not going to say that don't enter a competition that charges. Some of them that I have submitted to in the past, after vetting properly, I've paid some money to. Uh, the close-up photographer of the award uh, of the year award competition, uh, they uh, they charged a, a, a minimal fee, but I looked at their terms of uh, you know of, uh, not terms of service, but their rules and regulations and whatever else it is in there, um, and I helped them rewrite it slightly in their first year uh, to be a little bit more fair to photographers entering into the competition. Um, but there's other contests that I've submitted, like the Nikon Small World competition no fees whatsoever there associated at right. all. And there's good prizes too. So Steve, would you submit images to a competition that is asking you for money upfront uh, for the privilege of being a part of it? So when I first started doing photography, I would periodically, you know, see what I would call a respected pro, right? Somebody that whose name I knew, <clears throat> who I knew to be a judge at time in photo competitions, big photo competitions. And they would generally say, don't enter competitions where they charge money. I, I agree with that to a point, right? There are exceptions to every rule. I'll give you an example. You pay to go into the WPPI image competition, which is considered one of the top image competitions in certain genres. Yeah, but there's so, a pedigree there. But that's my point is it to enter a competition where they're charging money as a blanket statement being wrong. I don't agree. There are competitions where, look, you pay, you get a good prize return. 
Uh, it may be they're making a little profit and that's okay. There's overhead, there's management, there's coordination, there's resources that they have to deploy in websites and pay judges, et cetera. I get all of that. In a real respectable competition, judges are being paid. I totally get all of that. However, there are a lot of very good competitions that don't charge. And so you need to do your own due diligence and see is this a competition that has that pedigree that I feel safe doing it? And if you enter, I would make this argument. If you enter a competition and you don't know, and it ends up being something like we're talking about here, it's kind of on you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, caveat emptor. Uh, but at the same time, it just takes an email. Send a contest an email. Uh, and if they respond to you back, uh, you know, semi promptly with additional information and it's all buttoned down, they answer all of your questions and they know that they've got it all sorted out on their end. Um, it, it's, it's a way, I guess, just as a quickly to, to, to fact check themselves to say, okay, well, ask them a couple of questions based on their, uh, their terms, based on their rules. And if they come back to you with a proper answer right away, then I, I, would probably trust them a little bit more. If you don't get an answer, or if you get a vague copy and pasted thing that sends you back to the rules and regulations page, yeah. eh, no, I, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to well, give them a second thought. You, you just mentioned the rules and regulations page, which my argument also is most people think of that as a terms of service that's going to be 25 pages long and they're not going to read it. Most good contests, the rules and regulation page isn't huge. It's maybe a, a web page, maybe it'll take you, know, you 10 pages minutes to long. go through it, take you 10 minutes and really good contests will usually have subheads very clear. For example, <clears throat> there are competitions that take rights to your images. There are other competitions that. that only take rights to your images as needed so that let's say you win. I love that. They want le legally to be able to display your picture on their web page to. or send it in an email. Right. But. It will clearly state what those rights are. If you read nothing else, read that. If they're taking any rights to your image you're not comfortable with, doesn't matter, don't, even if it's free, right? Don't yep. do it. And I know, um, <clears throat> I'm not going to name names, but there, there was one company locally here in my city that years ago had run a photo contest and they had, uh, I guess they purchased a camera as, as a prize to give away. Um, and they were asking for local images uh, from the city and, you know, whatever the culture and moments of whatever it was. Um, and in their terms uh, and conditions, their rules and regulations, that document that you have to agree to, they said, um, well, we own everything that's submitted. And this was a total rights grab. And they knew it. They knew that they would be do, like, they'd be p buying like a three hundred dollar camera, uh, maybe four hundred on the outside, and they would be getting in hundreds of submissions that they would be able to use for anything, anywhere, for any purpose in perpetuity. That was a good business move, completely unethical and immoral. But if you wanted to amass the largest number of images of your local community that then you could use for profit, um, then that, well, there you go. I would have never submitted an image to that contest. Uh, and I didn't. And I know a lot of people that did. And I saw them used in advertisements. Right. And it was very frustrating. And they didn't know. Two comments, actually, in the chat are interesting. One of them is from Gary saying, 
uh, Gary Monroe, can you say Fry Festival? Great example of things. Fire everybody, festival, yeah. I mean, Fire Festival. Uh, everybody thought that was legit. And of course, what you end up with is a documentary on how not legit it was, right? And then my buddy Dustin Jack is here. So Dustin, I am so glad that you're here. It is great to, to hear uh, you in the chat. Said he got scammed once and realized right then would never do or enter a contest like that again. Sometimes that's what it takes. And, and Dustin says he thinks it was that, that one. Need to tell people. Say that yeah. again. Uh, Dustin said his final comment there uh, was that uh, he thinks it was that one. Uh, and they make oh. it seem like you just missed, but please re-enter next month. Um, yeah. But <clears throat> we we live in a world where no matter what industry you're in, uh, whether you're talking about uh, you know, uh, employers of big corporations or politics or whatever, everybody's trying to manipulate everybody. And it's really hard to remove yourself from that. And it just sucks when it gets into the artistic space. Um, and so there you had it. Um, but it also kind of gets into the, the next article that we're going to talk about here uh, on Petapixel um, about censorship. And uh, it's, it's a bit of a, a, a turn here. It's not about a contest or whatever. But what if you were hired to go and photograph an event and you did it? regardless of what that event is uh, and you go home and you, you do your job, you're posting the images online and then the police knock on your door. They confiscate your camera, your phone. Uh, I don't think they confiscated, uh, confiscated the computer here, but that's, it's enough to take your phone and, and your camera. Uh, so censorship concerns arise after a photojournalist arrested for photographing a protest and the freelance photographer, Andy uh, Aitchison uh, sorry if I pronounced your name wrong, but uh, was recently arrested in the UK for performing the duties of his job, just documenting an event. Uh, yeah. And uh, he was tasked with photographing a protest. And after he did that, he uploaded his images and he was arrested at home. Um, this is, I, I mean, he was released on bail uh, pending a, uh, you know, a, a court date later this month, which I, I feel like everything is stacked in his favor. Uh, I don't think that there's anything uh, against him at this point. And I really hope that there's a windfall coming his way. Uh, but what, what do you think about this, Steve? If you were to photograph a concert and it turned out that uh, you took a picture of somebody smoking cannabis at that concert, unbeknownst to you, but you have documented not a crime. not saying that Snoop Dogg was doing that. I'm not saying that. Uh, but you've documented a crime and then the police knock on your door and confiscate everything. Uh, I, I'm trying to draw a parallel here. I'm not sure if I'm quite getting there, but what, what do you think of this? Okay, so first of all, let's also be clear. He photographed this as a journalist on assignment, uploaded his pictures to the client, the news outlet. He was arrested six hours later charged with basically being a part of it. It was fake blood that they threw on the gates to this particular barracks in Folkestone, England, the Napier barracks. But here's the thing. He's there photographing as a job, but we're in this environment now where see something, say something. Somehow they found him, maybe because he uploaded pictures somewhere. I don't know. But in my particular case, I have, as an IT person, I have client stuff on my computers. Now, it's all encrypted and everything, but if suddenly they just bang down my door and confiscate my stuff, I'm also at risk of exposing client information, 
What if he, as a journalist, which has a, at least here, this is in England, can't speak to English law, but here journalists have a right to protect their sources and that stuff. And his drive wasn't encrypted. Let's not get the Scottish upset here. Okay. Yes. (laughs) Uh, But this was England. This was focused on England. And I don't know what the laws are there, but what if he had- uh, you know, information, correspondence, whatever, with a, a source that he didn't want to let out. Um, he was charged with suspicion of crim- criminal damage of a dwelling. And he was held and questioned for five hours. And this is this is really interesting because they really put him as one of the protesters that were actively involved in right. the process. So far as that he's got his uh, February 22nd hearing and he was specifically instructed not to return to the Napier barracks until the case had been concluded. The only reason why you would do, uh, do that is because they assumed that he was one of the protesters. And I think that law enforcement uh, got this wrong, that there was a knee jerk reaction and it's going to come back to bite them in the butt. But also, I, I look at the very bottom of this article, and it, uh, he's quoted as saying, this is going to have an impact on me for the rest of my life and for work. And he's not wrong, but I think Andy is actually going to get more work because of this. You know, it kind of puts him on a pedestal as as that hero photojournalist that was arrested doing his job, and he's got a uh, you know a, a, a cheer behind him now from everybody right. else that said, "Okay, well, you were wronged. Let's try to make this right." Um, I, I feel like this would hopefully end up in his favor, but uh, it all depends on how the law enforcement would look at him attending future protests and and if he would be single. Well, out and in, in the these days. Well. Every country out there now is trying to outlaw encryption, outlaw certain things. Being a photographer is a crime in many cases, it seems like. So I don't know. I, I wish I could just say, look, when this gets in front front of a magistrate and this gets in front of a judge, this is going to get tossed as, look, it's the press, right? But not all countries see the press the same. Well, and, and I, I would say also, Steve, that we're thing. really lucky here in North America or in many English speaking uh, countries that uh, the press is pretty free. It's not, there, there's limitations on that anywhere in the world. I, I get that. But most of the Western uh, world. Yeah. Uh, but if you are in a dictatorship country um, and you are the press that is going to say anything against the government, you might disappear. Right. Like we, we have so much freedoms to uh, to take what our leaders are saying and throw it back at them as falsehoods. Uh, and maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. Regardless of what it is, we have the ability to speak with free speech. Um, and that is a, uh, a virtue that is not universally enjoyed by the world. Right. Uh, so we, and we, we should not have- take that for granted. We should not take that for granted. Uh, but when that starts to get infringed on, uh, then I take notice of it. And so when you have this um, uh, this uh, photojournalist, and, and I want to make sure that that word is used, photojournalist, doing their job documenting things, that they are allowed to do that job in as many places in the world as is possible. And those rights should only be increasing and not decreasing across the globe, in my opinion. Uh, and if it's not being told by a photojournalist, it's going to be told on social media. You know, that the word is going to get out of this stuff. It's not like you have to right. hide a film canister inside of a toilet uh, like they did for the Tank Man well, photos at Tiananmen Square. Right. 
um, you know, which, which again, you know, those images were not supposed to get out. We, we saw them, but we live in a world where that type of measure is not required, or at least it shouldn't be. So I, I'm really hopeful. And again, like you said, I don't know UK law. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not a lawyer even in my own country, but I, I do have a sense that this is going to go in the favor of the journalist. And if not, we're going to talk about it again. Because I don't want to let that one go away and uh, and be a reversal of of the rights to document the uh, the historic events or that we might not even consider to be historic at the time, but in retrospect could be quite uh, uh, quite interesting to well, look back on and see one where of the problems started or that stopped. One one of the problems that I see with this this entire type of concept is look at GDPR right with the EU and other other entities, legal entities, passing laws or setting up scenarios where it's a law for their particular jurisdiction, but has overwhelming effects around the world. So it, with GDPR, you had a scenario where they pass GDPR for the EU, but of course, any US-based web company has to worry about the GDPR because their website or their service is available there. And that's my biggest fear on things like this is that laws end up being passed that in some ways tangentially affect areas where that law in theory would not be applicable. I I think you're right. Uh, it just, it, you have this globalization effect. We are a global village. And if you want to be partaking yes. in uh, the global economy, uh, the global uh, influx of people viewing your website, talking to you, what have you, you've got to abide by rules across multiple, uh, you know, national boundaries. Um, so I, I hope that the spotlight gets put on this. And, uh, and, and, you know, as, as Gary was saying in, in the chat here that, yeah, he believes that Spain has a law that can fine you for publishing images of the police. Well, Gary, I don't know if you're a Spanish lawyer. Uh, I don't think that you are, but, uh, you know, that might, might or might not be true. Uh, I'd have to dig into that specifically. And, and every country does have these, uh, the, these different those laws, uh, laws that you don't know exactly what it's going to be from one country to the next. And I, I would hope that there's a convergence rather than a divergence uh, in terms of, you know, the, the rights in, in many countries, but we, we just don't know. And Gary's just quoting the news. So that's great. But uh, let's let's go into another news story because we like to quote the news on this uh, on this podcast. Um, and uh, this is story number four. We do have one more bonus story after this, but this one is uh, it's going to be a quick one. Uh, Shutterstock, uh, famous micro stock agency, uh, has spent 40 or sorry, 74 million dollars on Turbo Squid. Uh, they've acquired the company and that could change the landscape of stock photography. So says the title here on DP Review. Now, I gotta say, Turbo Squid, their logo is awesome. And if there's anything that's lost in this acquisition, I hope that logo stays in some way, shape and form. Because um, it's just cool. But I didn't realize that there is so many photorealistic uh, 3D objects that you can buy and you can even have them pre-rendered in some ways to to put into certain projects and now shutterstock has that and i've never been a huge fan steve of uh, of shutterstock or iStock photo which is now owned by getty that just not not a brand specifically but the idea of micro stock where you get paid a dollar 50 uh for uh and i say this specifically i got paid about a dollar 50 us 
uh, to have one of my photos on the cover of the journal Nature, Structural and Molecular Biology. Um, I regret that, that I had ever had images available to be purchased for such a purpose. And as soon as I saw that and figured out who it was and what happened, I pulled all of my images off of those agencies. Um, but you have so many creatives, not just photographers. Uh, you have musicians, you have, uh, you know, 3d modelers and artists of many different forms that put their artwork out there. They hang out their shingle on these platforms and they get pennies on the dollar for what they should be getting. But I'm also guilty, Steve, because I've bought images off of Shutterstock. I've got four credits awaiting my expenditure, uh, on Shutterstock right now. Cause you buy them in groups of five. Uh, and the last one I did was for a, uh, an image on Photo Geek Weekly, we were talking about copyright uh, a while ago, and I, I needed a picture of a gavel with a little thing that it smacks down onto. And I bought that from Shutterstock. I could have bought a gavel on Amazon for 20 bucks, $30 if I want the little round thing it smacks into. Um, and maybe I should have done that and taken my own image now that I you know, kind of revisit that concept. Although another photographer somewhere that took that image has made... Uh, yeah, pennies, peanuts. And well, at least they have that from me. But I, I almost wish that there was a way for me to pay like a search engine that would let me look and see who is selling what at what price independent of any pre existing marketplace and say, Okay, you know, uh, Joe, John, whoever, uh, Sally, I'm going to go and I'm going to buy your image because I like your image, but I'm going to buy it directly from you and I will pay you 50 bucks for right. it. Uh, and I would be really happy if I could do that. Although who would facilitate such a thing unless they're getting a cut, right? Well, and let's be honest, anybody who puts their images on microstock <clears throat> knows what they're getting into. Most people understand that it's a battle of numbers that you have to license a ton of them. So the idea that you go spend 30 bucks and you take your own photo with your own time to do all of that, that's not going to change the industry that has now been built and exists and isn't going to go anywhere. Yeah. And in your case, somebody who voluntarily put their image up, you made them some money. But a couple of clarifications here. First of all, Shutterstock bought TurboSquid for 74 million, 75 million. Headline says 74, but the article says 75. TurboSquid is the world's largest 3D marketplace. In other words, they have 3D models the designers might use. But the purchase also included a second part, which is Pixel Squid. And Pixel Squid uh, that, that's is pre-rendered those models, right? Yeah, that's pre-rendered 3D objects. And here is the advantage of that, and the reason that a lot of people are using these instead of PhotoStock with Pixel Squid pre-rendered 3D images, they're rotatable, <clears throat> and so you can rotate them and capture a 2D image from multiple angles of a 3D object rather than just a photo that you'd need a ton of photos on. That's where these are getting popular. But again, in this particular scenario, imagine you're a web designer, which is usually when I used to buy stock photography. I'd be designing something for a corporate client and I needed somebody holding blueprints, right? Yeah, I'd, I'd be, and it's a website. I'd, I'd need to go shoot 20, 30 shots to, to outfit this website with stock. And you're not going to go and hire an actor 
uh, and uh, go to right. a, a plot or print out a blueprint, and and maybe that blueprint is copyrighted. Most of them would be, uh, and you'd have to get all these releases yep. in order to get that shot made. And right. then your client is like, "Why did that image cost me two thousand dollars?" Well, and let's take it a step farther. Three D objects, three D models, and rendered three D objects are a lot harder with a lot more skill level and a lot, if they're done well, like the Starbucks cup that they show in the the post, not everybody like you and me can just go, I'll grab my camera and do that. So this to me is much more of a useful service for some designers. I just hope that the, here's what I, happens I, I in don't acquisitions think that like it's this. Fair, they were with right? Pixel Squid and they had a deal for a certain percentage. And my fear, my biggest fear on this is that Shutterstock buys them and those deals get redone. I think that happened when Getty bought iStock, if memory serves. Uh, it did. I, I might be wrong about that. It's, it's, it's a while back, but, and I can't remember the specifics, but I know those deals changed. And I, I feel like- Getty took the, one library and started giving it away. Yeah. yeah well, so if you were in that library, what do you get from that? You get, well- I'm Right? <laughs> If, if you if you don't reevaluate, and I get emails now and again, I got one earlier today from PayPal saying, hey, we're changing our terms and conditions. And they give you five bullet points of what they're changing, even yep. though those five quick little bullet points translate to probably around 20 page of legalese changes that you don't get to see exactly what word has been changed from what it was to what it now is, which is what I right. would want to see uh, in that because I'm not going to reread that document and nobody is. But I feel... Like those slight wording changes, the acquisitions and the changes of policies, that helps the corporations. I don't think any time I've seen that happen, it's helped the end user. And I encourage somebody to no, tell no, me no, if rare. that has happened that helped uh, that that helped the either the person buying the images or the person selling it. But it's the marketplace that profits. Well, and and there's a comment in the chat also that you know, mm, but keep in mind. The market is needed. And that's why I say people put their their work on these stock agencies by choice. They know what they're getting into, and generally they're doing it. And there's a number of well-known photographers that made their name in stock photography. They yeah. know that they're going for the large numbers, and they know that they have to put a huge library of stock up there, and they make it a business. Some can do it. Some can't do it. I think this 3D thing is great. My biggest fear is not the stock thing because that's here to stay it's the it's the acquisition issues that could affect the creators well and w when you have only one or two or three big players it's not a monopoly what's the interim term right. it's an ogolop uh, ogolopoly uh, is where you have a couple of big players but you know they really kind of control things and um, you know if, from that perspective I, I would want a lot more choice uh, and I would choose to back the little Agreed. guys. In fact, I do have some images on um, science source uh, stock uh, as a photo agency. I've got some of my snowflakes there. And occasionally I'll get a check in the mail for like 40 or 50 bucks because uh, somebody licensed one of those images for that. And that's just for the single license. Uh, and that's great. You know, if you can find a niche agency that uh, people use, then that's great. But the problem is most people go towards the uh the the biggest bucket of choice which is going to be your shutterstock it's going to be getty it's going right. to be similar agencies to that dreams time i don't know if they're still an independent entity or not but um 
you know, you're going to go to those big sources, not the little guys. So I encourage you and I encourage myself even to go and source out images, uh, not take the easy route that's super simple. And I can just press a button and buy it, uh, but support the, uh, the the photographers. Maybe there's any way for you even to find out the name of the photographer on that website. If you're not in a rush, contact them directly and see what they would Well, and it would be interesting to see if th- those images are probably exclusive to the site. However... I wonder if the terms that they submit that stock photography, the the terms of the agency with which they submit the the art, I wonder if there's any limitation on them getting money elsewhere. So maybe that artist has a Patreon. Some things are exclusive, some things are not. I I know that there's a differential there, but what if you have one image that is substantially very similar to another because it was from the same shoot, um, but an agency rejected for whatever reason? Well, then maybe you could use the rejected one because it's just as good for your purposes. Right. We're kind of talking well off on a tangent here. So let's get back onto the concept of 3D, Steve, because that's what our next story, our final story is all about. And uh, if anybody knows me as a photographer, if you've listened to this podcast before, you know I enjoy stereoscopic 3D photography. Uh, And in fact, in a presentation that uh, that I did uh, with you and uh, and Troy yesterday, Steve, uh, I showed some stereoscopic 3D images and people were wowed by it. It's such a fun thing to explore that almost nobody has explored in terms of percentage of active photographers in the world right now. And so from Petapixel, they are reporting this 3D stereoscopic pinhole camera that aims to revive spatial photography. There's a lot of things that aim to revive spatial photography. This is one, and it looks fairly inexpensive. It's going to be on Kickstarter at some point. We don't know exactly what the format's going to be uh, in in terms of price and uh, availability. And uh, but it's kind of neat. Looks like a fairly surprised camera uh, because you can anthropomorphize a camera with two lenses. But uh, it's going to shoot, and this is quite interesting to me. Both uh, 35 millimeter format and 120 medium format in the same camera body. You can just put little adapters in that make it fit one or the other. Uh, and I think that's a kind of a, a neat concept to be able to explore. And I'm sure that your, uh, your stereoscopic depth is going to be different as the film size changes. But this is this is like, yeah, it's a cardboard camera. I mean, you know, it's made of plywood or, uh, you know, uh, whatever it's, it, it's cheap. Uh, MDF. It's made of MDF. Uh, yeah. MDF. Yeah. Um, and, and the images, you know, nobody really gets excited about a pinhole camera because the quality is so low. Um, but if you have dual, like if you have two eyes, your eyes add the depth information to it, which adds a lot more detail to an image than a pinhole would normally be able to maintain. And so, uh, and I've seen some of these images and there's a couple posted in the article. Uh, I uh, downloaded them and I reversed them so that I could see in proper depth uh, when I cross my eyes because I like to cross view 3D images because I'm strange like that. But the the idea is that you can capture uh, some really fun novelty images on a camera that I hope is going to be super cheap. I have no idea what the price of this thing is going to be. They also have a, a 3d viewer, uh, that will probably be announced, uh, with the same Kickstarter campaign when it goes live at the beginning of March. So we're about a month away from that. And I'll tell you right now, I'm going to buy one and I'll let you know how it actually performs. It'll be a reason for me to actually use 
the um, uh, the Ektachrome uh, medium format film that I have sitting here, even though it is sitting on a medium format 3D camera, I'd want to try this one out, this this new thing. So we'll see how that goes. Steve, have you ever shot anything in 3D? I have not. And so, for example, I can look through a viewfinder that shows 3D, which we'll get into a minute because he has one of those. Yeah, well, I mean, you can but even put your smartphone I, into a, uh, a Google Cardboard and see things in 3D with just this. Exactly. And, and that works. That I can do. I can't cross my eyes. So when I was in kindergarten, I was cross-eyed, and they shortened one of my eye muscles. And so I can't cross my eyes easily. It, it's uncomfortable. So I don't do 3D like those pictures where there's nothing, but if you cross your eyes, you can see something pop out. I, I can't do those things. But I like the fact that this creator – is thinking about bringing back a quote-unquote forgotten technique with spatial photography. It's interesting, though, when you look at the one graphic that's in there. So they have this graphic where they have words popping in and then leaving. Interchangeable viewfinder. I thought that was interesting. Well, uh, you would have that uh, with the, uh, the the old Leica cameras. Um, uh, I have a Leica Stemar. Yeah, but this thing's MDF. Well, I know, but, but you would have it then. And it's, it's just an homage to what you would have done then with a different lens and a different viewfinder, uh, to, to, to create that. And I have a, like a 3d lens. It had its own separate viewfinder. That was a tall, narrow frame for specifically what it was. Well, interchangeable film, uh, you've got a ratio capability, you've got an ISO capability, and you've got, you know, a click indicator. It also has, if you look at that bottom image, right? The bottom image actually has something that they label as eye patch for monoscopic exposures. Super smart that they did that. Um, I don't know if that's really super cool stuff smart, Steve. I mean, nobody's going to buy a stereoscopic 3D pinhole camera and use oh, it as a mono I disagree with image. you, sir. I disagree with you. There will be people who will want to take of a scene, a stereoscopic image for that capability, but then also a, a monoscopic one as well. I think I probably would. Well, no, because um, it, I think a it's stereoscopic image is two monoscopic <clears throat> images, right? So you could just Correct. use one and not use both of them. Um, but and yes, yeah, you're going to eat up some film in order to do that. But honestly, right. I, I think that if you're going to go out shooting with a stereoscopic 3D camera, that's what your game is. It's going to be interesting to see the cost. Is it Kickstarter next month, but it's two different options. You can buy it pre-built or you can get a do-it-yourself kit. And they also have, as I mentioned earlier, kind of alluded to, they have a stereo viewer too. And the stereo viewer is actually called the Emulsia, I guess it would be. Yep. And this is like kind of what you held up, the Emulsia stereo. It's it's just a viewer. You can tell it's you know made of MDF. You can it's even like see the little slots steroids, down in but, the bottom right. Um, what, what, what I yeah. imagine that to be, and we can't see uh, the other side of it, but I would imagine it to be similar to something that was made for um, the the 3D World uh, camera, which I, I have sort of right here. It's kind of hard to see, and uh, it is, uh, what is it? It's it's Here, let me put you on screen. Can you get, yeah, yeah I can see I, I, the, the, uh, the camera strap is tied around an Ethernet cable because I haven't touched it in a while. But um, this uh, camera, this medium format stereoscopic 3D camera, which, which I love, uh, looks something like out of, out of Splinter Cell, um, is uh, uh, it came with a Viewmaster on steroids type of viewer. 
and that viewer um, would have uh, utilized the medium format film as the viewing mechanism. So you would shoot slide film and you would put the actual slide film in the viewer and view that directly. And it was gorgeous. It was stunning. Now, this is not going to be quite on the same caliber because it's pinhole. I understand that. But if they were using the actual film, uh, you know, uh, slide film as the viewing mechanism, that would be fantastic. I don't know what they're going to do, but I'm going to be watching this one closely. Yeah, I, th I think the whole concept is kind of fun. I have never shot stereo, but this, depending on the price, this could be one that I go for. I mean, I, I think this could be, uh, you know, just kind of cool as a toy. But again, it's all going to depend on cost. And a different experience, right? I think we could all just kind of break outside of our own boundaries as photographers just a little bit and try something new, something different, learn something, Agreed. just have fun. Uh, and this is one of those fun things I had to add that in as a story here. And so that is, uh, that is the, uh, Minuta stereo, uh, by Dominic, um, Ostkowski. Uh, if I can pronounce that right. I hate when C's and Z's and K's are all shoved together in, in a, in a word. Um, and I never, anyhow, uh, Dominic, thank you for creating this project. I'll be watching it closely and I'll be a customer, I believe. Um, so there we have it. Uh, those are the stories, Steve. Um, what do you have for a pick of the week this week? Uh, before we actually okay. get there, uh, where can people All find right. you online and uh, the critique show that we do, your podcast, and anything you want to promote? So, uh, first of all, you can find me at Steve Brazel, at Steve Brazel. It's same as the country Brazil, but two L's on Instagram or Twitter. Uh, the podcast is Behind the Shot TV. So, at Behind the Shot TV, Instagram or Twitter. My personal website, Steve Brazel, but the podcast is behindtheshot.tv for the Behind the Shot podcast. On that particular show, it's a little bit different in that I have a guest on. I always look at it as I'm interviewing a photograph to better understand the photographer. So we pick one photo, we do a deep dive into that photograph, and uh, just kind of understand why they made the choices that they did. But along with that, once a month through the Behind the Shot YouTube channel, by the way, the podcast is available wherever you get podcasts. But on the YouTube channel, Don and I on the Behind the Shot YouTube channel once a month are doing image critique shows. We just did one right before we recorded this. We're doing, like I say, once a month. And if you want to participate in that, go join the Behind the Shot Flickr group. Submit your images. Have some fun. You can submit them safely. They're not going to be critiqued unless you ask. And the way that you ask is you simply, when you submit your image, use a Flickr tag of BTS Critique. That's what we search for so that we know you're okay with it being critiqued. We usually pick nine images a month. No idea why we landed on nine, but it's fun. It's about the right amount of time is probably what it is. Uh, rule of odds. And so we do nine images. We have a lot of fun with that. So, you know, that's behind the shot on YouTube. Well, thank you for that. And uh, you can follow Steve on Twitter or other places. Uh, the links to where you can find him will be in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. Um, and uh, me, well, you can find me at doncom.ca, D-O-N-K-O-M.ca for my portfolio and my contact information and everything else. And, you know, photogeekweekly.com for all this stuff. So, Steve, then your pick of the week. Okay, so I, there were a couple things I was going to do. I've got a new boom mic here. I'm not using it for podcasts. I use it for the critique shows and stuff where I don't want a mic in front of me because I've got so much going on. Uh, but then I thought, you know... Instead of doing that, 
I'm going to give you a push to some creatives that I really like, people that I watch on a very regular basis. The first one is going to be my buddy, David Bergman. David is a tour photographer. He's a Canon explorer of light. He's the tour photographer for Luke Combs. He was the tour photographer. I still is technically Bon Jovi. He's got a long history and he does a thing for Adorama TV called, uh, it is on YouTube on the Adorama channel on YouTube called ask David Bergman, where people send him questions. The website I believe is askdavidbergman.com. And he does these short little videos, 12 minutes, 13 minutes, 10 minutes, answering questions. And David is so good at photography that as he answers these questions, it is amazing. Even if you know photography, what you will end up learning from Ask David Bergman. It's one of the, in my opinion, it's one of the best tools that's available right now on YouTube. And then on his personal channel, the David Bergman channel, instead of Adorama, he's actually going back into the vaults. He's just started this, going back into the vaults of some of his classic photos. Like for example, the the gigapan shot that was done of the Obama inauguration. That was David's. He goes through and talks about it in there in detail. Some celebrity portraits, Tom Brady shots that he's done. I just think so. If you're into photography, I would highly recommend that you go check out David Bergman on YouTube and the Adorama channel for Ask David Bergman. If you're into video, I'm going to do photo, video, and audio. If you're into video, I can't recommend Photo Joseph enough on YouTube. Joseph he goes Lenaschke. through so I love much. This man. Yeah, Joseph Lenaschke, Photo Joseph. Um, Joseph just goes through everything video from how to use an ATEM Mini to how to do, you know, backups to everything you could possibly want about running a photo a video studio. He's a wonderful guy and his presentation style to me is really kind of what makes it with Joseph. Next up, audio. This is somebody that I've recently found. When I was buying this microphone, I actually reached out to this guy thinking he'll never answer me. He's got, you know, 164,000 subscribers. He answered me. He made some suggestions on the microphone pick and it's Curtis Judd. What I love about Curtis's channel is he does these wonderful side-by-side -side mic comparisons. He does like two of his recent videos, which you can see here. Volume versus loudness is the idea of what a VU meter is compared to a Luffs meter. And then along with that, he just released how he does his workflow and how you normalize audio for video. But he talks about all kinds of things audio. I cannot recommend... Uh, Curtis Judd enough. These are all just really, really good people. So David Bergman, both through Adorama and direct David Bergman on YouTube, Photo Joseph on YouTube, and Curtis Judd. Uh, great time to be learning new things from people that have been uh, down that path already. And I think it's exactly what you're trying to, to kind of push me towards too, because I know a lot about video. I don't know enough uh, as, uh, as Joseph does. You know, I I can learn a lot from David Bergman. And, you know, I, I I must admit, you know, this is a podcast that you're all listening to. I don't know a whole lot at all about audio production, and I could learn from a great number of people. So uh, thank you for that. Yeah. Pick. I, I might, uh, if I can never find some time, uh, go in and try to do some, uh, some more in-depth learning. I think I'll have time in the future. Well, after and the reason, book. the reason I thought it was fitting is, I'm a photographer, right? I'm a music photographer. I'm not a video guy, but I do a podcast and a lot of people out there doing photography. We talked about earlier, hybrid shooters, they're doing more video. And if you're doing video, in my opinion, at least, 
80% of any video is the audio. Mm -hmm. So picking the Heil mic or picking an SM7B or which boom mic you pick, you can't see it, but I have a boom mic here. You can kind of see it coming down into the frame. Picking the boom mic that you're going to use, a video switcher or an interface. All of these now are kind of hitting all of us. And so to me, sometimes it's just nice to know where to go. You may not need it today. But if you subscribe to Curtis, you never know when a video will pop up. You subscribe to Joseph, you never know when a video will pop up. You subscribe to Alex Lindsay for office hours. Or to you in, for your in one hour the shot. you'll eat. Or yeah, okay. I'm not good at self-promotion. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? There's great content out there. My here's a good way to word it. You're better off to subscribe and then when you get notices, ignore them. Then not subscribe and never know when that video you really could benefit from comes out. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, I guess uh, that kind of lends into my pick of the week, um, which is it, it's a necessary thing if you have a studio light and you're doing video work. Um, but I, I saw a whole bunch of soft boxes available and I was thinking to myself, I'm, I'm not lazy, but I don't want to get terribly invested in shaping light uh, in, uh, it can make a big difference. I'm, I'm sure of it, but if I'm both in front of the you're, camera, you're talking and like the choosing camera, a soft box versus an umbrella, a uh, soft box or umbrella, but how you block the light, how you shape it, how you bounce it, how you reflect it, how you do all of these, there's lots to do with light. Um, so I figured I'd start with the simplest approach and it's actually been pretty good. Um, I bought a, uh, an Apoture LS 300 X light that I put on, they have this uh, lantern softbox. And it's just this big glowy ball um, that uh, it's it's pretty evenly illuminated. Uh, and it, it just, it glows. It lights up the room very, very evenly. You get a very soft light. You don't get any harsh shadows with it. It costs $89. Uh, and it just fits on the light and it works. And you can read some of the reviews and everybody is just generally thrilled with it because it's easy. And easy is sometimes the answer for this type of stuff. It's good. It's not phenomenal. But if you want phenomenal, you have to understand light science and you have to put a lot more time and effort uh, and money into the equipment to do it. If you want something that is simple, easy, and effective, that lantern softbox has been working wonderfully for me in my studio, uh, attached to a light and it's not expensive, you know, for, I mean, for what you can spend on a softbox and everything else. Uh, and it's really easy to set up. It took me five minutes to set the thing up. So, uh, if you're looking for uh, a light modifier or I was looking for a light and a modifier at the same time, and you don't really know how to jump into it because it's like, okay, you need so many different ingredients. I got the light and I got that because I thought it would be simple. Start from there. I don't know when I will evolve from this needing more than what it offers, but it's not going to be anytime soon. So 89 bucks for that light modifier money. Well, it's really, I mean, when you look at light modifiers, this thing's pretty interesting. Like just literally it's a big diffused ball. Yep. So if you want it, here's what I thought when, when you sent me the link to this and I pulled it up. You're, it's nighttime, you're shooting a bride and groom out on a sidewalk outside a venue, and you fly this over their head, and immediate, and you even gel it if you want to. Um, you immediately get this almost lantern street light 
look. Yeah. Yeah. And because it, it does fall off fairly quickly. It's not, it, it's very omnidirectional by design. Uh, so that means that the light from a single light source is going to be spreading out in every direction and, and thereby it's not going to go that far. So you get a street light effect from it. Um, and, uh, and I wouldn't have thought of that, but Hey, if you put it on a big light stand with a boom arm out and hang it down, then you could do exactly what you just described. So there are lots of possibilities for that kind of stuff. And, um, I, I'm happy with it. That's, uh, that's all I have to say about that pick of the week. And uh, I guess that winds us down for this episode, Steve. Thank you very much for being uh, not only the guest host, but also the person punching the buttons behind the scenes to make this live thing actually happen. And thank you to everybody. I did better this uh, time than I did on the critique show. I screwed the critique show up today, but this one worked pretty good. <laughs> well, thank you for learning your lesson. Uh, but yeah, you're also using a different microphone that has a mechanical mic mute button. So, uh, and I got the same yeah. one, so I know how you operate. But thank you also to everybody that was listening live and to everybody listening to this after the fact, if you're on a commute or just doing some, I don't know, I listen to podcasts when I fold laundry. So I don't know what you do when you listen to photo geek weekly but thank you for listening very much uh and we'll be back again next week and until then everybody it's time to stay in and shoot <laughs>